I'm Chelsea Parker. I'm a freelance fiddle player, and this is The Jay Franzi Show. Welcome to The Jay Franzi Show, a behind-the-curtain look at the entertainment industry with insights you can't pay for and stories you've never heard. Now, here's your host, Jay Franzi. Well, thank you for joining me and welcome to the show. I am Jay Franzi and this is your backstage pass to the entertainment industry. This week, we get to talk with a comedian, a radio personality, and a producer. We get to talk with David Race. We'll talk to him about his time on the Howard Stern Show, his time in radio, and we'll take a deep dive into his time as a comedian, even writing jokes for Jay Leno. Now, David has had one hell of a career, and I can't wait to talk to him about it tonight. So if you would like to join in, comment, or fire off any questions, please head over to jfranzi.com. Now let's get started. Sir, you have a lot for us to go over tonight. Let's just jump right in. How'd you get your start in radio? Uh, you know, it's weird how many radio people I've talked to that have a similar story to this, but as a kid, I was really fascinated by radio and disc jockeys. And really, as a young kid, I remember like going to sleep at night with a transistor radio next to me when I was really little and listening to top 40 radio, you know, from the big booming AM top 40 stations in New York and knew the names of the disc jockeys and things like that. And then uh, probably by the age of 10 or so, when other kids are outside playing normal kid things, which I did plenty of that too, hide and seek and the things you'd expect. But when other kids are outside doing big wheels and hide and seek and whatever else they were doing, I had started to play radio in my house. And first it was, um, me recording myself on cassette tapes, counting down the top songs or whatever. And then eventually I got really carried away with it. And by age 11 or so, I had a CB, this is the late 70s, I had a CB that I taped with hospital tape just to stay on. Taped it so it would be on. I wrapped tape around it. So just on. It's a live mic all the time. So if I flick power on, it's a live mic. There's no two-way. And I would do my little fake radio station and, you know, put the CB down. I balanced it right next to the speakers, you know, to start the song. I talk up records and start. Then I started recording TV commercials onto cassette so that I'd have commercial breaks to go to. I mean, I really like got into the elements of radio and I even changed formats. As I got a little older, I was more of a rock radio kid. So I changed formats, became a rock station for a while. Then at some point I went back to top 40, needed to work out those chops a little more. So from a very young age, I was playing radio at home and somewhere about age 19. Again, I didn't go away to four year school somewhere around age 19. Like, you know, what would be your first kind of year out of high school. I started going to broadcasting school in Manhattan. Which school was it? It was the center for the media arts, which doesn't exist anymore, but they were like a 10 block walk from Penn station, you know, and hop on the train from Long Island and jump up the stairs on front of Madison Square Garden and just jog down the street 10 blocks and I was at school. And at the time, even though my all my childhood fascination was music radio, but by that time, by the time I was 19 or something, I had I had discovered Howard Stern and was quite wrapped up in him and his show, oh, yeah. like obsessively wrapped up in it. And 
one morning I was riding into the city on the train, listening to a Sony Walkman FM radio, as I rode on the train, to the Stern Show. And I just happened to hear them mention in passing that they need a new intern. And to my knowledge, listening as a daily listener at the time, I didn't hear any intern. There was no acknowledgement of an intern. I never heard someone on the air. I didn't, the show was different then. It was just Howard, Robin, Fred, Gary, Jackie. That's it. You know, Scott, the engineer, might pop in here and there. But it, it wasn't like it would be today where he's got a gigantic staff. He's got, there's people that work at the Stern right. Show that never meet him. It wasn't like that. It was the core, you know, this core group. And I certainly didn't hear any reference to an intern or anybody coming in that was like John the intern or anything like that. Nothing like that was going on. So it, at the time when, when this passing, just sort of background the reference came up that they need an intern, they're looking for an intern right now. It wasn't even like they were making an announcement. It was more like Howard said to Gary, oh, that's right. You have that meeting. You're looking for interns later today. All right, I'll talk to you about that at one o'clock. It was just like a thrown by comment. But I had just at that point in time in broadcasting school, I just started to think about internships. I just started to be looking into like, maybe I could find my way to an internship. Right. And I was thinking about some talk radio station. I was, I thought I might end up being the intern for Bob Grant on some like political talk show or just to be around something. And there goes this reference, this, this passing glancing comment that we need an intern. And I got off the train that day and I ran faster than usual, my 10 blocks to <laughs> school. And this is the late eighties. And there was a payphone right upstairs. The school was like downstairs in a basement. I remember you, you walk in a ground level entrance and go down a couple of flights to get to school. And right at the ground level, there was a payphone. And I, I remember I stopped at the Seven Eleven or something on the corner, handed them a 10 and said, give me all the quarters. $10 and quarters ran into the school, ran downstairs and told my teacher, I'm going to be upstairs on the phone. I have a critically important call to make ran back upstairs. All this is really like running. Okay. And I dialed and dialed and dialed K rock, the radio station. I must've called and reached the receptionist 15 times in, you know, in 20 minutes, half hour before she finally put me through to the Stern show office and Gary Delabate, later on known as Baba Booey, took the call and said, Stern Show. And I recognized his voice immediately. And I just like spit out. I heard you guys looking for an intern. I'm exactly the right guy for it. There's no one who you can get better for this than me. I'm, the, I'm who you want. You know? And I just remember him being like, you know, they, they probably got other calls like that. I remember just him being like, why? Like, who, like, why should I tell you? know, like whatever the hell he asked me, I answered aggressively enough or crazily enough that he, I just remember like a minute long conversation where he just kind of went, all right, can you come in tomorrow, 1030? I'll meet you then. Something like that. And I was like, yes, yes. You know, and I, and I, I showed up excited as can be. And I, I was just turning into a longer story than I expected it to. But I, but I, <laughs> my father, my father at the time, my father at the time, my father had, had, had given me, um, an old briefcase that he had. That was one of those hard plastic briefcases that snaps closed, like with the metal. Right. And I used that in broadcasting school to carry, we used to carry reel-to-reel -reel tapes and some razor blades and white chalk. And we were learning how to edit and, you know, things you'd have to learn for radio. Headphones were in there, things like that. It was an odd bunch of things for a briefcase, definitely. And I took that briefcase and 
took the address of the K-Rock down and, you know, raced to the station the next day carrying my briefcase. And I remember I went into the interview and it was Gary and Fred together interviewing me. And every time I answered a question throughout this whole interview, Gary did all the questioning, I'd say. And every time I answered a question, Fred, who was holding an acoustic guitar, would sit and play the guitar while I answered. So the question would be, so uh, why do you want to work here? What, what, what makes you the right guy? Well, I think I'm the right guy because <laughs> while I'm answering. And this went on through the whole hour. And I had this briefcase. And I remember they asked me, like, what's with the briefcase? And I explained a broadcasting school. Anyway, in the end, eventually, when I got the job, I found out that one of the reasons I got the job is because Fred told Gary that nobody they interviewed handled the guitar playing better. Right. Which I, which is basically just ignored it. Right. Didn't flinch. Yeah. And Gary, I think, was worried that I'm a serial killer. Like, I'm just, just a weird 19-year-old kid with a briefcase and long hair and an <laughs> earring. Everything about me was strange. I had razor blades in the briefcase. Everything about me was strange. But about the most exciting thing in that sequence was, I remember after that interview, which was a relatively long interview, like an hour-long interview, I think Robin Quivers walked in during the interview at one point to get something out of the office, and I just remember being like, it's Robin Quivers. Like, everything about it was, you know, kind of surreal. surreal. Yeah. But, but, but the most exciting thing was three, four days later, whatever it was, Gary calling me and telling me, all right, can you come back in tomorrow at 1020? Howard wants to meet you. And I just remember that being like, I, like, I don't know. If, it doesn't I don't know matter if, if I get it or not at this point. I, yeah, I, I can't even remember how many people I called that day to tell them what's going on here. Like I was calling probably long lost six degree cousins. And I knew this going in, Howard and I graduated from the same high school, just For many real? years apart. So I got there and I get in the waiting room for that, that meeting. And Gary comes out and says to me, all right, Howard wants to meet you. He just wants to, you know, we're still deciding between you and a few other people. You're down to the last few. You're one of them. But he just wants to, you know, have an opinion on the, the few of you that are left. I said, okay. Thought that sounded normal. I'm about to turn a corner into a room and meet Howard Stern. I turn the corner, walk into the room. Howard's sitting there with his feet up on a chair in front of me. And as soon as I enter the room, Howard goes, hi, David, nice to meet you. Welcome aboard. <laughs> and Gary goes, you idiot. I told him there's a few more. You know, he, he, he revealed to me that I got the right. thing immediately. And he apparently knew we went to the same high school. Gary must have shown him a resume or something. So he immediately brought up the high school and like, did I have this teacher? Did I have that teacher? Did that guy's a real jerk? Did you have him back? You know, that sort of stuff. So what was going through your mind at that point? It was, it, the whole thing was, it was like a dream state. It was surreal. Right. And, and then next thing I knew, I'm sharing a desk with him because I worked at two different versions of K-Rock about the first six months or so that I worked there. We were at this location, the one I'm talking about. And then about halfway through the time that I was, I was there about a year, but halfway through the time we moved five, six blocks away. You know, So I was at two different physical configurations of the building, but the first building they had a very small office with two desks in it, you know, two chairs. And Howard and I were sharing one desk and Gary and Fred were sharing the other desk. And Robin and Jackie didn't really have a desk. It sort of like would put things on a desk somewhere or, you know, but I mean, I remember like Gary saying to me, you're, you're sharing this desk with Howard. Like I, like if he came into the room, get up and get out of your, get out of your chair, that kind of thing. And I remember my grandmother who was like my biggest fan. My grandmother used to say to me, 
you were thrown to the wolves. You were thrown. <laughs> it was like you were thrown to the light because I was a 19 year old kid, fresh faced, just out of high school. And I was suddenly on the Howard Stern show and sharing a desk with these guys. And these were guys I was quite aware of as a listener. And I remember thinking when I got that job, I'm going to get on the air with this. Even though I didn't know any other interns from on the air, I was thinking, I'm going to break that wall. Well, before you get on the air here, what was it like sharing a desk with Howard? Uh, there's not much, there was, wasn't much to it because he wasn't normally at his desk. I mean, he was at his desk if he had an important call to take from his agent or his wife or one thing that happened. Well, two, the two other things I can think of that happened every day that would put him at his desk were lunch. He ate the same exact lunch every day in like the most disciplined way. Like I, like I, <laughs> every, every week I had to go out and, you know, get the supply of fresh turkey, X amount of potatoes. He would microwave up like a, just a straight plain potato and lettuce. There was no bread. There was a kind of turkey and lettuce and green apples. And I would like, you know, get this. I knew my supply every week. I got the same, went out to the local, you know, Korean markets and got the same stuff every week. So he would eat the same lunch every day. That was one time he was at the desk. And the other time he was always at the desk. Every day he'd do a meditation. He would be by himself in the office. Everyone had to clear out. And he was in there like a half hour. I remember one of the, ru- one of the rules. I, I, Gary gave me a whole set of rules when I first got there. I'd always do this, always do that. You know, I had like certain tasks, like meeting Howard at his limo every morning outside. And I would take a call from Ronnie, a limo driver that we're on the blah, blah, blah bridge. We'll be there in 10 minutes. You know, that was my cue to go downstairs. And I basically acted like the secret service. I would have to go downstairs, stand there, wait for the limo to pull up. And at five 20 in the morning, Howard had fans out there for autographs. And I would be standing there in the pitch dark at five 20 in the morning to hustle him from the limo right. straight in the building. And, you know, he's a six foot six, six foot five guy. And I was a 19 year old kid about five, seven at the time. I was probably <laughs> three inches shorter than I am now. And, you know, it was 120 pounds soaking wet problem. And uh, I was the bodyguard. And, you know, and, I, and I'd hustle him in. If I stood out there at 520 in the morning, before, right before limo pulled up, it may not look like there's anyone here. I'd be thinking, oh, nobody today. And then, like, the minute the limo pulled up, people would pop out of their cars <laughs> from, like, 50 yards that way, 75 yards that way, across the street. Like, people who were, like, ducking down or something would, you know, just appear. It's crazy. Very strange. What was the craziest thing you saw out there? There was one guy that would have weird custom jewelry that he would try to show Howard that would have a human eyeball and a ring and like, you know, really weird, really creepy, weird stuff. And he was like a weird, <laughs> creepy looking guy. And he'd be like, Howard, look at this human <laughs> eyeball ring. You know, like, you know, Howard would be like hustling by. It's very nice. It's very nice. Yeah, yeah, it's like, great. Always in motion straight into the door as he's looking, you know. But I had like little rules, and one of them was that uh, Howard doesn't take any phone calls from anybody except his wife or his agent. That no one else gets him on the phone. I remember that. I remember being told that like on day one, and I saw that tested a few times. Like I like I I kind of remember like Cher calling, I think, and him not taking the call. Like no one gets him on the phone except his wife. I was working there when. Um, when the FCC fines first happened, oh, we yeah. first had like very public FCC trouble and the show wasn't yet national when I was on it. We were on in Philadelphia, New York only at that time, but he was the biggest radio personality in New York by a gigantic margin. In other words, he was already every bit as famous in New York 
as he would be nationally four years later or five years later at the time of his movie or something. So he was already front page news in New York by the time I'm working there in the late 80s. And when the FCC thing happened, it was front page tabloid news there. And we got like an inordinate amount of press calls that day from, you know, medium to minor press to major press, like to, like to NBC Nightly News with Tom Brokaw calling. And every level of press was gone. There was no one he would talk to. Like Brokaw himself could have been, they could, the phone could have been like, it's Tom Brokaw. I'd like to, I'd like to speak to her personally. And, uh, you know, he was not going to talk to Brokaw. Like, no one could get him on the phone. No one. I remember I was so naive and young and didn't know like things like this. I remember during that incident, one of the calls was Gannett newspapers, right. like Reuters and Gannett, you know, and I remember telling the reporter who was calling, he will not talk to you. There are no calls coming in right now. And then I go call his agent for a comment, not here. And she goes, do you know who I am? I'm Gannett. And 19-year-old stupid me who actually didn't know that I'm making a mistake, didn't even know I'm wrong when I said this. In response, I said, I don't care who you are, Annette. <laughs> Annette. Right. I, called her. I never heard of Annette. I called her Annette. Like you could see the girl on the other phone like, right. what kind of organization is this? That's too fun. Did you get any, any slack for that? Oh, they could care less. They don't. They, they did not. They meant right. it. Howard doesn't talk to anybody. Ted Koppel could have called it. He wasn't going on Nightline. No one was going to get to talk to him. All right. So how did you approach getting on the air? I just, I just knew that somehow something about me or how I interact with them would just cause me to end up in front of a mic soon. I just knew that I'm going to walk in. For example... I had a million little jobs each day, you know, like, like I could, could have written a list for you at the time of like 30 things I got to do every day, a checklist. And one of them was I carried an egg timer. Already you're like, what? Right. This, like, like the idea that my sentence just opened when I carried an egg timer. But one of the things was I carried an egg timer, the kind you tick off and set it, reset it to 30 minutes or whatever. And it was to tell me that the cassette tape that was recording the show in the studio next to Howard was probably ready to be flipped. It was like a 90 minute cassette. Right. So it was like 44 minutes egg timer, go in there and flip it. 44 minutes egg timer, go change it. And I had to always be on top of that because it was from those cassette tapes that the best of Stern broadcasts happened. These cassette tapes would get turned into the production studio down the hall to Scott the Engineer. And one of my other jobs was to, as the show happened, to log every topic that was happening. So Howard talks to Sam Kinison, 7, 10 a.m. Howard and Sam talk about blah, 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 7, right. 20. And then 7, 50, Sam leaves, he's gone, and blah, blah, blah. Like Just to, you know, to, to chronologically log the show so that when we go back to the tapes, we know where everything's going to be. And Gary or I would have to mark the cassettes, or the, the logging, I'm sorry, with things we thought were best of Stern caliber. So if I was looking at the uh, logging and let's say Sam Kinison was on, I might put a star next to it, best of, like this is a best of segment. Like, like let's remember to go back and pull that. So from these cassettes, that's how the best of Stern tapes would get pulled from the cassettes. The, the cassettes would get transferred to reel to reel. Scott, 
the engineer would edit them up into the tight pieces that became the best of. And, and the best of Stern at the time was actually on reel to reel. When we did best of Stern, I'd walk into Tony pig, who was hosting it with part one of today's best of on a reel and all the intros he's got to do, you know, and, and, and there would be a 15 minute segment and white tape that kills off a minute. Cause that's where he knows to stop it. And after the commercial break, it'll be the next thing he's introducing. Now we're talking to Letterman or whatever. Anyway. So when I would go in with the egg timer, and change the tapes that would cause me to be in the studio every 45 minutes and not necessarily to be spoken to, but I'd have to sidle up next to Howard while he's in the middle of doing a speech, you know, about whatever. And I'd kind of squeeze in behind him and flip a tape over and, and walk back out. I'm constantly back in his way for a second, back in and out. And I just knew that at some point that's going to lead to like, Hey Dave, what time is Bubba Bubba coming in? Oh, she'll be here at three. You know, I, I knew that's And it just started like that. I started getting on the air in those kind of ways. You know, just matter of fact things like, hey, Dave, while you're here a second, uh, what time is that, that having? Uh, do you have, go get, go, go bring me the megaphone and the blah, blah, blah. I want that before. You know, it, it just turned into like that type of interaction. In Howard's mind, I think it becomes that you're more, you're becoming more familiar to the audience. So he can talk to you more about other things, you know, so eventually we're talking about how long I lasted in bed with my girlfriend <laughs> yesterday. Do you have any favorite moments from those times? We had a blind guy on the show that we used to have on all the time named Froggy. And he had this voice like Froggy from Little Rascals. This very unbelievable voice, like, like, like the character Froggy. But he was blind. He was diabetic, I think, and blind. And he would be on the show pretty often. And one of my millions of jobs was to bring the guest coffee or water or whatever thing they might want. And standard was water. If they didn't ask for anything, they were automatically going to get a water. And when Froggy came in, he sat down in the chair and I ran out and just kind of automatically filled up a styrofoam cup. It was styrofoam cups at the time, not you know, bottles yet. <laughs> styrofoam cups of water. And I just got the bright idea spontaneously in the back room there to poke a hole in the bottom of the styrofoam cup. So when I brought the cup back in, handed them the cup, the water is just slowly streaming out very slowly because it was a very small <laughs> hole onto this guy. And at some point, like 10 minutes into the interview, I think Howard noticed or something. Is that, is that water? Why is the water? And then like, you know, like, Jackie, look at that cup. There's a hole in the bottom. Did, did you put, you know, it, became, it turned into who poked up. Dave, did you poke a hole in the bottom of the blind guy's cup? <laughs> <laughs> the next day, this became like a two-hour interrogation of me. Like, they they couldn't believe I'd done such a thing. And it was like two hours of, what is wrong with you? Like, how, how insane? <laughs> how could you do You know, they asked me if I was responsible for the Tylenol killings. They asked me if on the weekend, they asked me if on the weekend I chained wheelchairs to taxi cabs. It was like endless well, yeah. stuff like this. Okay. And, and I remember this, like on the air, I remember being like somewhat humiliated. It was funny, but I remember being somewhat humiliated off the air at the end of the show, like at 10 30 that morning, Howard saw me in the office or something. And he said to me, he goes, do stuff like that every day. It was brilliant. <laughs> on the air, he raked me right. because he tore my head off on the air, off the air. He was like, that's the funniest thing you've ever done in the show. Do it every day. <laughs> that is awesome. I love it. I mean, I was always a big fan of the show, and I, I listened, you know, from the beginning. And I would think those times were probably the best times of that show. I, I agree with you. I think that I think the peak, you know, as a real aficionado, I, I would say, in my opinion, the peak 
of that show in terms of it's 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 at its zenith. It's it's the best it's ever been. Is roughly between eighty six and ninety one, something like that. But I mean, it's it's somewhere in that roughly five years or so. I think is the best the show ever is, and I feel really thankful that I happen to be there for a year. I think right smack dab in the middle of the show at its absolute creative best. And I did some really, some other interesting things during that that no other intern had done that I just, by force of will, I guess, just got done. Like, for example, um, about halfway through the time I was there, I started getting to co-host the Best of Stern with Tony Pig. So it wasn't just Tony coming on and me handing reels and an intro right. card and him going, I'm Tony Pig hosting the Best of Stern, and here's our next segment. It started being Tony turning to me and going, all right, Dave, what do we got next on the thing? Well, Tony, next thing we listen to is blah, blah, blah. All right, Dave, let's go. I started having that role. I started doing a lot of the, the uh, daily show promo voiceovers. I mean, I'm a 19-year-old kid at the time, just out of high school. And I'm starting to, you know, we had a daily show promo where every day we would take a, a clip of what we thought was a highlight of today's show, sort of like we did. We picked out clips for best of. We also picked out clips that were today's best thing. And I would bring that clip to Scott and say, this 45 seconds here with with uh, the bangles is great. And it, it had a, a generic wraparound intro. It was something like, uh, if you weren't listening to the Howard Stern show this morning, then you missed the bangles talking about blah, 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 blah. Then the clip. And then the flip side was something like, you know, a rock and roll outrage, Howard Stern, morning 6 to 10 on 92.3K, something like that. And I started doing the daily voiceover. I'd hear myself all day long. And I remember like being a 19-year-old kid at the beach with my friends, then being like, that's you, like like listening to myself. <laughs> it was such a weird thrill awesome. to be just out of high school, already the voice of the Howard Stern show. That is awesome. Let me ask you about Scott for a second. Known to get beat up on that show. Was he as bad behind the scenes as he was on the air? No, he was actually one of the best people to me. He was always good to me. I got along with him. He was a great tape engineer or whatever. I don't know how he'd classify what he was, a production engineer. I mean, the Stern Show didn't have a production engineer the way you think of when you think of that kind of phraseology. You think of like a guy who's running the the pots and and running the mics for Howard, like sitting across from him through the glass. You know, the show wasn't like that. Howard ran his own stuff. And I remember asking Gary early on or something, why does he run his own stuff? Because I knew Howard was a a big enough radio entity to have somebody running the board. I knew like Rick Dees had somebody else running the board. Like, how did Howard not? And the answer was actually Howard wanted the screw ups. He wants that he can't find the right mic. And like, wait a minute. (laughs) He wanted the bloopers. He wanted like, I don't know what I'm doing with this equipment. You know. That he hit, you know, hits the song and the CD's skipping, and someone come in here and tell me how to fix this. He, it's all part of, of the show, the thing to him, the mistakes, the the blemishes, every. So he didn't want the smooth, perfect show with a guy who knows how to run it. Yeah, you know? that's pretty and that's cool. why there was no one doing that. So Scott wasn't a production engineer like you're picturing the guy across the room. He was down the hall in his own little smoke filled private closet production studio. <laughs> but what he was doing in there basically all day was editing the best of Stern into existence, taking the cassettes we gave him last week and turning it into half hour chunks and 20 minute chunks. that are going to become best of Stern on the next vacation. And the daily show promo was something I did with him almost there, almost every day. I'd have to go in there and record the voiceover in front of a mic with him in the room. And 
I spent a lot of time with him. He was fine. He was, I had no problem with Scott. Did you ever spend any time with Howard off the air? He, he used to play in a softball game with friends of his on the island, really close to my house, like 15 minutes from where I lived. And one day he asked me, you want to play in the, in the games? You know, it was like Sunday mornings at nine or something. You know? And I remember it being surreal. I remember like the whole period of time was so weird. I remember being, you know, standing in left field in a softball game in a little park that I grew up playing in as a child, playing Little League games in three, 10 years earlier. Whatever. Right. And seeing tall, gangly Howard Stern at first base in this residential <laughs> neighborhood on Long Island and thinking all these houses that are 50 feet from this park don't realize that's Howard Stern right there on first base. Like if they look out their living room bay window, that guy right there, a hundred feet from their house is Howard Stern. Like they don't, they don't realize who that is, right? It was a year full of those moments. That's funny. It's going to be crazy to you too, being 19 years old and playing softball with them in a little league field. That's going to be awesome. Yeah. It's also the year that he got a TV pilot deal with Fox to become their new late night host. Fox was a new network. They had almost nothing on the air at that point. And they, they were looking to have a late night show. And I, don't, I can't recall exactly what order things went in. I think Joan was maybe just fired. And they gave Howard a five-episode pilot deal to see if he could be the guy. And I was involved in that. I, I remember a week or two before he started filming, I remember like being aware that he's about to start doing this. I would hear it talked about it in the offices. But no one asked me to be involved. Gary didn't ask me to work on it. No one asked me to be involved. And one day I was riding down the elevator with Howard to, to go back to his limo at the end of the day. And I just took it upon myself to say to him, hey, can I work on the TV thing too? I, you know, I, I know I work here, but I, I, I'd be really exciting. And he goes, sure. He goes, Gary didn't ask you? I said, no. He goes, tell Gary I want you to do it. And next thing I knew, I'm going to Fox every day, or almost every day after the radio show, walking you know down to the Fox studios. And... I would say that my role there was, especially on taping days, on the five taping days, was, at least what Howard said to me, is to be his right-hand man. So he just used me his, as his personal assistant gopher on taping days. And I remember him saying to me something like, you, my wife and kids are the only people out in the dressing room. Don't let anyone else in my dressing room. And like, I remember I was like one of the only rarefied people allowed to walk through the thing that said star into his dressing room. <laughs> and, you know, and I had just little jobs all day. Like, Hey, David, go tell Ronnie that I'll be up in about a half hour, put the car out front, you know, like, like just running statements back and forth to people. But I was standing there on the set of this unbelievably exciting, you know, Letterman esque show hosted by Howard that ended up never seeing the light of day on television. What's your favorite memory from the show? One of the things I, I remember from the show, that show specifically, was he had a really good rock band as the in-house late night band. He had like Twisted Sisters drummer, Billy Squires keyboard player, the Pretenders bass player, Leslie West on guitar. But this was the thing that, that was so funny to me. And as band leader, standing there in like a, one of those ruffle tuxedos, kind of snapping along like in a 60s groovy way for no reason, Steve Rossi. That's too so like from, from out from the old 60s comedy team, Alan Rossi, he had like this rocking, like loud, like harder rocking than any other late night band. And like a guy in a light blue ruffle tuxedo going like, yep. 
So, so what came after your time with Howard? After the Stern show, I, I went and became a disc jockey. My eyes tearing. I don't know why. I make people cry. Yeah, yeah, you're making me cry. No, it's actually I don't know what it is. Just <laughs> anyway, I went and became a music, music disc jockey. So all the things I played as a child in the radio games, you know, came to fruition for real. Um, after that, and and first way out on the eastern end of Long Island in the Hamptons, where I did middays for a while, and then that was like on an alternative rock station. Then I. Uh, end up in Connecticut for a minute. Then I ended up at WBAB on Long Island for like four years, which was like my hometown, big rock station. And then another couple little minor stops here, ultimately leading to me in Philadelphia, WMMR in Philadelphia, which was a major, major rock station. So I did a ton of disc jockeying, tons. And especially at, at BAB, and maybe even more especially at MMR in Philadelphia, I started to do much more of my comedic, the class clown that was in me started happening more in front of the radio, you know, on my show. And it became a bigger and bigger problem as a music disc jockey because they didn't want you to do anything but do the time and temperature and here's the Rolling Stones. Coming up next, another concert ticket giveaway. And they wanted, most radio stations had a very strong desire to keep the disc jockeys pretty unimportant and anonymous and my personality wouldn't let me do that so i so i, I really started breaking through at bab and then in, in philadelphia i would say even more so because when i got hired in philadelphia the guy who hired me in philadelphia basically told me to let loose he told me this station's too staid and stoic and he and he, he's bringing me in for this reason he wants the station to start moving the kind of direction he thinks i could take it so he really like cut the chains on me. He was he was a rare case of a music you know program guy who a programming guy who gave who me some freedom was telling me to let loose. Yeah, and unfortunately for me, around three quarters of the way through my time in MMR, he got fired. And when he did, his arch rival at the station took over, and his arch rival at the station was exactly of the opposite mindset. His mindset was the the original radio guy mindset. The, yeah. Everyone shut up and play the Rolling Stones. And I, I'll never forget, this is a real thing. I got a memo when the first guy got fired and was replaced by the second guy who hated him and therefore didn't want to hear a word from me other than here's the temperature and here's the Eagles. I got a memo from that guy, the new guy, that actually said, David Race, effective immediately, cease all attempts at humor. <laughs> By the time I left MMR, I really felt like a caged animal. And I, you know, in high school and things like that, I was the class clown of class clowns, you know, always in trouble for those for those things in school. And I had flirtations in my mind with stand-up like that. I, it's the kind of thing I wanted to do. Letterman was my other idol of idols at that time. So somewhere around the time I left MMR, I thought, like, this is the time. Like I'm burnt on radio. I've had it. With, I, I just really like I had. My, I, I was done with radio emotionally, and I was like, "This is when I want to wade into that pool." And I started, uh, you know, first doing stand up in Philadelphia, like at you know restaurants and bars and open mics to try to get the hang of it. And I had one big advantage in that in radio, you do a lot of personal appearances at nightclubs and things. You do a lot of like concert bring-ons of rock bands i brought bands on stage so i had experience standing in front of a crowd 
with a live mic, whether it was to bring on Weird Al Yankovic at a show he was doing, or whether it was just at a nightclub appearance, throwing out T-shirts and doing giveaways and stuff. I had experience doing that. And that was important in stand-up because I think for a new stand-up, one of the worst, most difficult things to get over is the stage fright. It's getting comfortable. So if you can come to that game already having knocked out a lot of that, it's easier to get on to, oh, now let me try what it's like to do jokes with that. And I remember like some of my radio nightclub and concert bring on appearances was starting to teeter into stand up. I, I remember very clearly bringing the band as in the band, the famous group, the one Robbie Robertson used right. to be in the band. He wasn't in them at the time, but everyone else was Levon Helm, all those guys. I remember bringing them on stage at Stony Brook university on Long Island. And all I was supposed to do was a true bring on, like you hear in Peter Frampton's Frampton Come Alive album. Just I was supposed to do, you know, ladies and gentlemen from Woodstock, New York, the band, and just get out of here. That's all right. I was supposed to do. The audience isn't here to see me. Okay. I did like a minute and a half of stand up. I did jokes. I, I I like borrowed jokes from Phil Collins, things I saw him say to to Genesis crowds I thought were funny. Like I I just remember a crowd like laughing along and looking at me kind of like, like what? Like, like they were primed for like the band that I'm still talking. <laughs> and no one told me to stretch, you know. And I remember at some point looking over this direction and seeing Rick Danko and Yvonne Helm and these guys from the band standing there looking at me with like smirks on their face. Like, is this guy out of his mind? Like we should already have been on the stage like 90 seconds ago. Yeah. And then I finally do get to the band. And as I run off the stage, they're walking on. And I remember Levon Helm kind of just glaring at me. I remember it was drumsticks walking by like, like, what is wrong with this guy? You know, and and Danko (laughs) was just smirking at me like this kid's crazy. You know, and when I got just through the side staged into the backstage area their manager was a big burly guy like haystacks calhoun i remember like just like him looking at me like he's gonna kill me and i just ran and i ran through the whole arena the whole circumference of the arena and like like dove out like an exit door into a parking lot <laughs> area that's not even near where i parked and like escaped to my car and left so i was already starting to play with like what it's like to talk to an audience way beyond time and temperature while I was in radio. So once I left radio, I was like this caged animal that couldn't wait to go out and do that. And I started doing that. What was going through your mind at that time when you're <laughs> walking past these guys and then having to run around the arena? Uh, that I need to survive this next few minutes. I, I, they, it really seemed like I could get physically injured. It was, it was, it was, <laughs> they, they, they like, it was the kind of thing where they were going to grab me and hang me upside down by my feet and shake me. So how did the stand-up career pursue from that point? Philadelphia for a couple of years within like not very many months, I was playing the, the pretty good clubs in Philadelphia. Like, and I was being mentioned the Philly Inquirer a lot on lineups and tons of Friday and Saturday night shows and things. Well, that's cool. Did anything come of that? Somewhere in that time frame, I met Jay Leno backstage in Atlantic city. And I had this idea in my mind that before I meet him, I knew I was going to meet him that night. I had this idea in my mind that before I meet him, just write some jokes from today's headlines and give them to him. Because I was already starting to toy with moving to LA in my mind at that point. And I thought, just write some jokes from today's headlines and give them to him and see what he thinks of them. So I, I just sat in front of the internet that day and, you know, picked out five or six news stories that jumped out at me and wrote some funny monologue jokes from today's news, typed them up, printed them out, you know, had it in my breast pocket, you know, and when I met him backstage, which was just, 
wasn't like a set up meeting with him. It was just like I got backstage access for a Jay Leno concert. When I met him, I, I introduced myself, told him I'm a comedian and I've been playing in Philly and stuff. And that I wrote these jokes for him today that I'm thinking about moving to LA. You know, just thought maybe he'd want to read these newsy jokes I wrote. What was his reaction? He took it without looking at it. He just took it and kind of went like, oh, hey, you know, kind of put it away. And I thought, like, that's going to be in a garbage in a half hour. The next day, my home phone rings. This is before cell phones. My home phone rings, and I have a voicemail. Hey, how you doing? It's Jay Leno. I, I, I read your jokes. It was very funny stuff. You got a good eye. Uh, give me a call back. Uh, I'd like to talk to you. That's one of the weirdest voicemails you'll ever get. This guy's the host of the Nitro that time. Right. <laughs> Did you save it? I, you know, I do think I have it somewhere. I, I, I could swear I, like, at some point was going through boxes in my house like a couple years ago and found it. So I think I do have it. But I, one of the weirdest calls you ever have to make is I, I called him back at the hotel in Atlantic City and the switchboard operator answered. And I said to her, I go, listen, I know you're probably getting this all day. His name's on the marquee in the front of your hotel, but I'm returning Jay's call. And she goes, okay, yeah, whatever. I go, no, he really <laughs> just called me on my voicemail. I go, you don't have to put me through to him. Just put me on his voicemail. I'll leave him a message and you'll see. He really did call me. She goes, okay. To my amazement, she really put me through his voicemail. I didn't reveal the room number or something, but like packed through and I hear like, leave a message for this guest, you know? And I left him a message and he called back <laughs> like in 10 minutes. And we talked for like 15 minutes and he told me, call his assistant and tell him he said to call. That's another really weird call you get to make. Like on Monday when you call and go, you know, to Jay's assistant, hi, I'm David Race. Uh, Jay said to call. Yeah. Very interesting thing in, sure your, in your life that moment. Right. Um, and he had me sign some paperwork and just so, start submitting some jokes. And they used a couple of my jokes in their monologue over the you know year or so. I didn't stick with that very long because I, I moved to LA like a couple years later, probably. And when I was writing those jokes. It was tedious. Like it was like every day you had to sit there and look at this, these, you know, the news and write jokes. And like, you rarely got one. Like for every 200 jokes you submitted, maybe you got one on. So it was like a lot to do to maybe get one on. And I just like, I became more, I don't mean like I became disinterested, but like it just was, I didn't stick with it so much, you know, and that's the extent of how far that particular thing went. So then do you use that, that progress to then get into the clubs in LA. I don't remember doing anything with it, with that specifically. Get you know getting to the clubs in LA. I just when I, by the time I got here, I'd done a lot of stand up in Philly. I felt like I was on strong stand up legs. I discovered when I got to LA that I wasn't because, and I don't mean to put down other places or whatever. Like so, the Philly guy listening to this right now is going to be insulted by this. You know, bear with me. Um, <laughs> You discover when you get to L.A. that your stuff has to be written to a different threshold. And what I can get away with in the Philadelphia nightclub and make that audience laugh, I couldn't get away with in L.A. In L.A., it was much more industry, show-busy crowd. It was much more like, hmm, hmm. you know, judging you differently. And half the room was comics. It was a different vibe. So you had to write it that much smarter and that much higher brow. So I came to LA thinking I've got 20 really good minutes. And like, it took me like a week or two in LA to realize I have two really good minutes. <laughs> and then I had 18 that I have to throw. And my writing sharpened. It got better. You know, like jokes that I started writing within a year of living in LA were 
probably now even over the head of what I might have written in Philadelphia. But I, in L.A., you had to write it that way. And it made you a better writer. It's a delicate dance. You've got to write it that you don't look like a hack. But you also can't write it like so highbrow that it's like, who's this, you know, Rhodes Scholar doing that? You have to be smart enough to know just how stupid to make it. You've got to know what that balance is. So what was your, your highlight in stand-up at that time? Oh, my God. I, the first thing that comes to mind is not a highlight. It's a low light. But, you know, I think, the, I think a good natural answer would be the first thing that comes to mind, right? Yeah. So the first thing that comes to mind is, is not very long after I moved to L.A. I don't remember who. Somebody through somebody recommended me to audition for Mitzi Shore to be a regular at the comedy yeah. store. And it was pretty quick into my time here, like the first few months. It was very, very quick. And she's hard. And I wasn't, I wasn't nearly as good a comic as I became later. You know, sometimes you get seen a little too early. But that's not even what went really wrong that day. That's not even really the issue. What went really wrong that, that day is a two-parter. First of all, I crashed my car on the way to the audition. It's the kind of thing that would rattle you and have you shaky showing up right. somewhere. You don't want to walk into a room having just coming from that incident. Then I went on stage and I opened my act with a bit that I was doing at the time. That was about that I suspected my father has Parkinson's. I was starting to think my father has Parkinson's and I had evidence why I think he has Parkinson's and none of the doctors are telling him. And it was a funny bit, but a true thing for my real life. I didn't know that Mitzi had Parkinson's. Oh, I didn't know that either. I was 30 seconds into my act when she yelled out from the back of the room, get him off, get him off. And they staged over me and removed me from the stage at the comedy store and banned me for life. That's going to be a, a big deal at that time, especially in that area. Now, I, I, fortunately, I ended up becoming a regular at the improv. <laughs> what was the time difference between that? A while. I'd say the comedy store things, when I first moved here in 2000, 2001, I become a regular at the improv probably in 2005. So during that time difference, did you think that it was over? No, I was playing, you know, in LA, you play a ton of, restaurant gigs and bar gigs and you know you get a random show here and there at the ice house and the improv and th like it's not like i had never performed at the improv before i was a regular there i think i was on a new faces night i had done like another spot or two at the improv i'd probably done many at the ice house and and then a million restaurant and bar gigs that you do from far and wide around la from like an hour and a half outside la in orange county you go all over the place and do gigs here so i'd done all that but being a club regular at one of the three major clubs in LA, the Laugh Factory, the Improv, or the Comedy Stores, is your primary stand-up goal as a comedian in LA. And yeah, so I, I mean, I didn't become an official regular at the Improv until about probably 2005. Well, I just know she had a lot of pull at that time. Yeah, no one told me that she was sick. I was just doing a bit that was in my act. And it, it happened to be the bit I was opening with. So I was 30 seconds in and they, I, they stage dove me. I'm talking about a guy ran up and physically dove on me in the mic. Tackled and you. Me. <laughs> yeah. And I was just like, what, what? Like I didn't, I, I had no idea. Like, like you would have thought there's a fire in the building. Like I didn't know why this is happening. That's insane. And I, I was escorted right out the front door, by the way. I was what? escorted right out the front, like kicked. Was the there curb. an audience? Yes. Yeah, full audience. I, I, I was literally taken by, like, and th like thrown onto Sunset Boulevard. And what was the audience doing? I don't remember, just...
laughing. They don't know well, what's like going just on. in shock. Oh, that's yeah, insane. I don't know that they they probably didn't. They probably were as clueless as I was about exactly what just happened. <laughs> just some weird woman just yelled from the back, "Get him out of here!" Oh mercy. Well, hey, we do this thing here we call Unsung Heroes where we take a second to shine the light on somebody who works behind the scenes and somebody who may have supported you. Do you have anybody who supported you along the way that you'd like to give a little credit to? No. Nope. <laughs> there you go. Short and sweet. All um, right, folks, on that note. <laughs> no, I, I honestly. Uh, all right. I'll, this is first. I'm going with first that comes to mind. That's the theme of tonight. The Comedy Store Story was the first thing that came to mind. There was a guy, my broadcasting school teacher, named Mike Salvatorelli. He was a news and, and traffic guy in New York on the radio at the time that he was teaching. And I found him very, very big supporter of mine, big early fan of mine in school. Like he seemed to recognize that I had a natural ability to do radio, you know, and, and like, and appreciated my humor and stuff. Uh, I feel like I, I got a lot of um, encouragement and enthusiasm and you know, I felt embraced by Mike. A big thanks to David for joining us tonight and sharing his stories. And thank you for taking the time to hang with me here. I really do appreciate it. Please follow, share, and connect on all the socials. You can do that and find the links to everything mentioned over at jfranzi.com slash episode 41. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to The Jay Franzi Show. Make sure you visit us at jfranzi.com. Follow, connect, and say hello. This episode has been brought to you by VR Knives, your source for 100% custom knives made by a true rock star. So, if you're in the market for a new piece of art, reach out to VR Knives. 407-421-5528. 407-421-5528.